Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. My name is Adam McNeil, and today we have the opportunity to interview Dr. Butler over at Flagler College, who's an associate professor of history. And today we're going to be talking to him about his phenomenal book published by UNC Press, Beyond Integration, The Black Freedom Struggle in Escambia County, Florida, from 1960 to 1980. Welcome to the show, Dr. Butler. Ah, thank you for having me, Adam. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. And so um, before we get into Beyond Integration, um, can you give us a quick synopsis of uh, your trajectory as a scholar and how you uh, reached uh, this particular book? Yeah, it actually starts um, probably with my my upbringing. I'm originally from Mobile, Alabama. I know the accent probably gives that away. <laughs> and, um, you know, I majored in history at Spring Hill College there in Mobile. Knew that I wanted to study Southern history. Uh, I've always been fascinated by the region and uh, warts and all. Ended up at the University of Mississippi where I earned my master's and doctorate, Uh, decided to stay at Ole Miss where I worked under some unbelievable scholars there and came to realize that you cannot understand the Southern experience without understanding the African-American experience and vice versa. Uh, And, you know, if you wanted to understand the contemporary South, you had to understand the civil rights movement. So that was sort of my introduction into the topic. And as I learned more about the civil rights movement, the more fascinated I was in the topic and the more I realized I had a lot to learn, still have a lot to learn about the topic, but decided that I wanted to go into that area for my professional academic studies. Uh, My dissertation was a comparative study of two similar locations on the Gulf Coast. That was Biloxi, Mississippi and Pensacola, Florida. And the more that I learned about the Pensacola struggle, the more fascinated I was. Fast forward a little bit uh, to the end of my degree or the beginning of my academic career. And as I sort of decided which route I wanted to take with the the post-dissertation study, um, I decided to, to go into Pensacola a little bit more in-depth than I had at the dissertation level and decided to make the Pensacola struggle the focus of the manuscript that I put together after uh, I I earned my doctorate. So long story short, that's how I ended up with the Pensacola story. And like I said, with Pensacola, the more I learned, the more fascinated I was in the topic and the more that the current work began to really come together. Um, I think the thing that interested me most, Adam, was initially the chronology. Most people believe that the civil rights movement, at least, if if not ended, at least changed, uh, evolved after 1968, after Dr. King's death. Um, And that was the story in Pensacola. It seemed that in Pensacola, there was a relatively smooth process of integration. And I say relatively smooth when compared to places like Birmingham, Montgomery, Mississippi Delta, you know. Um, But it was during the 1970s that all hell broke loose. And I stumbled upon a federal report that was conducted in the early 1980s. And the emphasis was police brutality in Escambia County, Florida. And that was really the nugget that started me on this research path. And what initially fascinated me was the idea that the civil rights movement actually accelerated in Northwest Florida when the 1960s ended on a variety of different levels. And that was sort of my introduction into the topic. And from there, everything else just uh, was sort of clarified as the research process progressed. Mm, Right. And uh, we're definitely glad to have you on the show today to be able to discuss more about you know, that the the black freedom struggle um, in Pensacola, because Pensacola, uh, as far as its positionality, um, you know, one of the parts of your book that I thought was uh, most striking, especially as uh, as a Southerner and particularly as someone who grew up in Florida and have many friends from Pensacola in particular, is the um, kind of Florida exceptionalism that you speak about throughout the book as far as uh, you know, Florida, it's not, it's not a part of the deep South. It's not, it doesn't have this particular history of, uh, like an Alabama or a Mississippi, you know, it's not, it, it's just not 
this it's not the solid South that we think of. But by reading this book, Beyond Integration, you quickly realize mm, that's it's like Paul Harvey said, it's not about it's not fully the rest of the story, right? Oh, that's exactly right, Adam. Um, yeah, it, it started with the chronology. And as I got into telling the story of the civil rights movement in this particular area beyond the 1960s, hence the title, um, I, what I actually started getting into a little bit more was the idea of Florida as both part of the Deep South and Florida as having a story that is more consistent with the rest of the nation's story when it came to race relations. So, you know, there are many different angles here that I I, I think I introduced. Chronologically, absolutely, the civil rights movement didn't end. The idea of Florida exceptionalism, this idea that Florida is somehow different because of tourism and because of outside influences and because of moderation quote unquote, at the executive level, right, that that Florida may not have had a George Wallace or a Ross Barnett, uh, that somehow Florida is different. I think V.O. Key uh, nailed this idea of Florida exceptionalism with the uh, the concept that Florida emits a faintly tropical rebel yell, right, that it's southern, but it's not. It's different. It's Disney World. It's tourism. It's the quote unquote sunshine state. Well, as you get into Florida history and you get into the civil rights elements of Florida's history, what you realize is that culturally speaking, Florida is both deep south in terms of culture, but is also very American in terms of the kinds of racial issues that continue to confront Floridians today are very similar to those issues that the rest of the nation continue to deal with. And unfortunately, those two issues are in the realms of police brutality and Confederate imagery. Those become civil rights issues in Florida. And, you know, as it, it takes very little awareness today to understand that those are still issues that our nation as a whole has trouble dealing with. Right. And and I also think that considering your book was published in 2016, um, being a year after, um, you know, I've, I feel like many generations since the Confederate, um, uh, since the Confederacy, quote unquote, ended in 1865, which clearly it didn't. But really, I, I would say that 2015 for for this present generation was that touchstone time of uh, uh, Confederate iconography uh, uh, resuscitating itself through the actions of uh, Dylan Roof um, in, in Charleston, right? And so, considering it, you're right, and and you have all the things that are happening now and the discussions and. You know the, the 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 taking down even of, in Florida. You know I think there was like a monument uh, there of uh, Mary McLeod Bethune that's coming up in the Florida uh, legislature uh, fairly soon. And so all these different things are happening. And so the the timeliness of your work. You know you're you're you and your you and the publisher. You know you guys are you're all pretty smart people. But you know it, it's all happening. You know at the same time. And so it's a very important and timely. Uh, text, especially because these are people that are still alive. And I think that's the part, as someone who studies uh, colonial and uh, early 19th century history, I don't get to talk to them, right? At, at least, you know, I, I don't get, you know, there's no living vestiges, right? So uh, I always find it uh, intriguing for those scholars like yourself who deal with live people, right? It's it's a it's such a very different posture too. So I'm sure we're going to get into uh, kind of the the methodological questions as well that go into your text. But um, I'm definitely glad about the timeliness of your work. You know, Adam, and that's an interesting point because as I, I remember putting together the conclusion and mentioning Michael Brown and mentioning uh, instances of police brutality, you know, writing in retrospect about what happened in Escambia County and mentioning Philando Castile and the African American men who had been shot and killed under. Uh, shall we say, questionable circumstances at best. That was actually on my mind when I wrote the conclusion. Eric Gardner 
in New York City, for instance, Freddie Gray in Baltimore. And the police brutality issue was what was foremost on my mind. And that was one of the themes that divided Escambia County in the 1970s. It is these this continued pattern of police brutality. And unfortunately, that's not going anywhere. The other element, as you've alluded to, is the Confederate iconography and the role that historical memory played in communities when real advances in integration continued to progress. You know, we're not we're, we're talking about a couple of different things here. There is a difference between desegregation and integration. There is a difference in what we consider to be de jure forms of desegregation and de facto forms of segregation. And I think one of the things that the Pensacola story holds for the rest of the nation is that it demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that just because laws are passed in 1964 that mandated lunch counter integration, just because laws are passed in 1965 that guaranteed voter discrimination was done away with, that registration was protected by the federal government, that that didn't mean that the civil rights movement was over. We've shifted in movement emphases from laws to practices. So one of the questions that I ask are, is what are the practices that continue to divide, divide communities? And for Escambia County, for Pensacola, it was the persistence of Confederate imagery at the county's largest high school, and it was continued discrimination both by up by, by law enforcement up to uh, shootings, police shootings in which after a cursory examination, it's deemed justifiable homicide and the case is dropped. So um, for me, that was something that was really important. That was an important story to tell because that's really where you saw the power imbalance exist. What happens in a community that is made up of a strong minority of African-American voters. And that's what you had in Pensacola. That's what you have in most issues and in most, I'm sorry, in most communities where these issues persist. African-Americans are not close to constituting a voting majority. Now, in places like Mississippi or in sections like Atlanta, Birmingham, um, and some of the places where the best local civil rights histories have been written, blacks are a very formidable voting block. Well, they're not really in Escambia County. Um, so what happens in places like those when the civil rights issues, which whites deny being civil rights issues, are brought to the forefront of the public dialogue and the public consciousness? How does true integration occur in those areas? And uh, for me, that's the message of the Pensacola story. That's one of the lessons of the Pensacola story that the rest of the nation can learn from. It's that the, uh, the power imbalance that the civil rights movement tried to address may or may not have been successfully breached. So you still have people in positions of authority who use that power to deny that there's any type of racial component to situations such as conflicts over Confederate imagery and conflicts over police brutality. And that's the real tragedy of the local story. Right. And um, I think that's something that has been a continuous issue when it comes to black education, going all the way back to the antebellum era, even in uh, places like where I live in Boston presently, where you always have these questions in black communities about what what does integration actually look like on the ground? And also looking at desegregation and also what does also separation look like, too? Because, you know, segregation is fairly much deemed as something at the governmental level, whereas separation is something that more of the community level uh, decides, at, at least from my uh, fair understanding, but then integration, I think, is still it's it because integration is a process, right? Whereas integrated is something in the rearview mirror, and so I think that what this story goes to show is that this is happening in a in a case where 
the the Brown one decision was 54 and the Brown two decision was 55. And so we're talking, you know, years after the implementation. And, you know, it's it's also interesting, too, because Pensacola doesn't get the news that Tallahassee did. It didn't get the news that Montgomery did. It's not the news that Birmingham and mind you. All of these time frames are while these movements are going on elsewhere. So as a country, your eyes are not in Florida. Your eyes are elsewhere. And yet, Pensacola, as you noted, and I didn't even realize this, positionality, it's almost equidistant between Tallahassee and Montgomery. Like, I I, I would have thought it would have been much, much further, but in actuality, no, it's not. Shoot, even James Baldwin talked about being in Tallahassee, but he didn't go to Pensacola, right? That's right. That's right. Um, Yeah, I mean, all these elements that you just mentioned are absolutely things that were on my mind as the research progressed, as, you know, my fascination in this topic only continued to grow, and, and, and it still exists, right? It's this idea that, okay, Florida, is it exceptional? No. Because the the attorney general in the state of Florida was actually the person that wrote what became the Brown two logic. Um, it you know it was with all deliberate speed. That's actually a a Florida model, and the whole idea with the pupil assignment law that was a model of how school districts could delay, stonewall, and avoid meaningful integration. Right. That is a Florida creation, and we see it in Escambia County, right? There is a really, really long process of legalized integration with the Augustus suit, Charles Augustus versus the Escambia uh, County Board of Education. Well, over time, it is the very definition of what tokenism is. The school board, the school board in Escambia County can say, we've integrated. We are moving with, quote unquote, all deliberate speed. We are putting token integration into these grades, into these schools so that we have, quote unquote, achieved integration. Like you said, it's a rearview mirror. Well, for African-Americans who have integrated they begin to ask the questions that we're asking now, and that is, what does it mean to have a truly unified educational system? Can you be a truly integrated educational system when the largest high school is the least integrated in Escambia County, and that's Escambia High School, and in 1956, when this school was built, the students chose rebels as their mascot in 1958 when it opened that's important it was a white only school a scambia high school they chose rebels as their nickname they chose johnny rebel as their mascot they chose the confederate battle flag as their symbol well we'll this is the year after little rock so there is a clear connection that although we might have to integrate this is white students proclaimed our school these are our symbols. So fast forward again, 10 years, 15 years down the road, and you have the late 1960s, early 1970s, where you only have a handful of African-American students there. Busing is put into place in Escambia County to increase the percentage of black to white students or white to black students, however you want to phrase it. Well, those symbols that are there are used to let African-Americans know that they weren't welcome. For me, Adam, the the crazy part of the story is that the uh, the Augustus suit that integrated Escambia County schools remained open. And you had a group of students and parents that basically petitioned the court to rehear the case on the uh, basis that the presence of these symbols represented that the, the school board was not unitary, that it had not unified. And the judge, Winston Arnow, actually concluded that the presence of Confederate iconography violated the spirit of the original Augustus decision. So this idea that, yeah, the presence of racially inflammatory images, what 
Judge Arnell called racial irritants, violated the spirit of the original school integration order. So this idea that images and symbols and what they represented to African-American students violated the spirit of Brown was really, really fascinating. For me, that was an aha moment. And the only reason that the appeals courts um, voted as they did was so that the local boards of education could make the decisions to remove the uh, the symbols without local unrest. And that's exactly what happened. It was local unrest. So the you know the symbols as a civil rights issue that prevented what we would call true integration was an incredible decision that the local board of education absolutely fumbled. Mm-mm. Right. And so when I think about this particular process, it's um it's really telling to me because when you look at the um the particular actors in our story it's it gives you it, it's when I think about this it's almost like a symphony it's like a play right you have you have you know you have your 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 villains you have your 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 protagonists and such like that and I think it's just so it's such a intriguing story I think in so many different ways it's not only because I can identify with a particular place in in a certain way but also because when we look at the the stories about Yes, we're quote unquote integrating the schools, but we're we're not going to be resting, you know, because the control of the school still needs to be in the hands of those in power. And really, if you look and if you read the scenes, which I know our listeners are going to do after buying this book, is that they're going to realize they're going to realize that this story is one that you would think that this was happening somewhere else. And I think that's the part that is, to me, the most important part is that, maybe not the most, but it's an important part, is that you have segregation as a fight that goes well past what you think it should. Absolutely. Not only does it seem like it's happening in a different place, Adam, but it's happening at a different time because the rhetoric that's being used by people in positions of authority is straight out of Mississippi in the 1950s, right? It's the idea that uh, law enforcement is being protested, that there are demonstrations against racism within the Escambia County Sheriff's Department. And then you have the riot control officer who says, um, I keep N-words in my yard to, for my dogs to play wor- with. N-words are better than milk bones. And that's a direct quote. It's like, wow, this is like rhetoric from 20 years before the the mid to late 1970s. And it's playing out in almost a Shakespearean way. But just to throw another wrinkle into the story, I meant to think of, okay, this is Florida in the mid to late 1970s. These are civil rights tactics that you would read about that occurred the previous decade, mass marches, uh, meetings in churches and demonstrations uh, in downtown areas and economic boycotts and chants that are uh, being led against the sheriff's department on the grounds of the county courthouse. And then you realize, wait a minute, that there is a quote unquote implementer's revenge that is going on that the civil rights protests aren't addressing. And that concept of the implementer's revenge is really, really important because that cuts to the thesis that these demonstrations and that the civil rights movement of the 1960s did nothing to uh, remove or, or to shift the power imbalance. Now, what I mean by that is that the power to make the decisions for true integration, the, the decisions that were made by county commissioners, city leaders, boards of education, uh, law enforcement authorities, that the power there does not shift as a result of the civil rights movement. So the people who resisted making meaningful policies that integrated these areas are the same people who are in the positions of power to implement the orders, the integration, the judicial decisions that demand change. So what exactly changes? You still have 
predominantly white people on the county commission. You still have white people on the police force. You still have white people on the boards of education. And they are the bodies that resisted change and are now put in a position to implement change. Well, what you see is that they implement change on a token level alone so that real integration is delayed, it's stonewalled, it is not invoked to the full spirit of the law as Judge Arnell actually ruled. So it raises questions about the power imbalance between African Americans and whites in a position of authority and what the civil rights movement actually did to alter that uh, power imbalance. And we see the chickens kind of come home to roost in the 1970s when we realized that there was very little shifts in the balance of power at the county levels and at the city levels that bring meaningful integration. And that's how you get a situation like the protests against the sheriff's department and the protests uh, against the Confederate images that exist. So it brings up this idea of the implementer's revenge and how much people in positions of power are doing to really integrate these institutions. And the answer is very little, unfortunately. Right. And and when we get into the particular book, I think it's very telling because, you know, you talk about the, 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 re, the revenge and, and mind you, you know, the Confederate uh, stronghold, you know, fl- fl- surprising everybody, you know, alert, alert, Florida was a part of the Confederacy here. Um, so, because I think that's another thing is like, as someone who lives in, in New England, it's like, everybody wants to throw, throw shade all the time, as they say at, uh, at Southerners or Florida, but I'm like, or as, as really to say, you know, Florida is, is, is kind of like indifferent or it was kind of like Kentucky or it's kind of like, you know, kind of neutral in, in the whole war effort. But it's like, no, nah, guys. They they left too. They 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 left the country and enrolled with the uh, good old Robert E. Lee and and so um, and you see the uh, the 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 grandchildren and the great grandchildren of those folks uh, because a lot of times what you have is the migration of folks from the Confederacy uh, who who fought and they end up moving elsewhere to places like Florida and settle um, in areas like that and so. You know, it, it's so intriguing to, to really see when you talk about things like police brutality and, and such like that, you see that echoing all throughout this book and not even just that, but I think the most, re- I think the most intriguing part, and I can actually say this part, I think the most intriguing part was when you look at um, uh, the, the resurgence of the Klan in the 1970s, especially because I remember growing up watching the film um, uh, a time to kill where you have that famous line from Samuel Jackson, where he says, uh, yeah, yeah. I hope they die. Uh, I, what do he say? Something like, uh, yeah, they deserve to die. And I hope they burn in hell because, you know, they, uh, you had, you had members of the clan, uh, 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 uh I believe rape his daughter and he ends up killing him in, in the, um, in the, uh, in the courthouse. And so when I think about that, because I was, they didn't never give an actual time for that film, but I would say kind of like the 1990s or something like that, uh, 1980s. And so when I was reading it, it kind of came into my mind, like that kind of reminds me I, in that kind of the same way where you have the clan resurgence, where you think they're antiquated. They're like 60s. They're like, you know, uh, um, or else other places or like the 50s or whatever. But no, they they were strong and not only strong, but strongest in um, in, in Pensacola at that particular time. Um, as integration is really hitting its, uh, you know, you have the, all the political actors um, converging on each other, really, in the in the in the um, in the seventies, especially. Yeah, uh, the strongest post nineteen sixties unit of the uh, the Ku Klux Klan as we know it was the UKA. It was the United Clans of America. Its headquarters, Lake Wells, Florida. The Grand Dragon was a guy named John Paul Rogers. And what they wanted in the aftermath of the 60s was to stage a national, not just a regional, but a national resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, where did they look 
to stage this resurgence, they looked at Pensacola, Florida. They looked at Escambia County at this time, and they basically went all in on trying to rally the good besieged white people of Escambia County to protect and support law enforcement and to protect and to support the proliferation of Confederate images at the local high school. I mean, they had a cross burning at the Pensacola Five Flags Speedway that estimates claimed that there were up to 4,000 people that attended that rally, right? That they tried to start, well, the Clavern that existed there, the title of that chapter was Clavern 109. And Clavern 109 was, like I said, it was where the UKA went all in on trying to have a national resurgence. Now, for a variety of reasons, I'm not going to spoil it for a listener, for the listeners. Uh, Man, that's a cheap cheap plug for the book, isn't it, Adam? Uh, You know, if you want to know more about how this doesn't happen, you'll have to read the book. But I hate being that guy, but I'll, I'll do it for the the, the, the sake of book sales there. But yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, I know you have to do it. I hate to do it, but uh, but there you go. Yeah, the, the national resurgence doesn't happen as the UKA anticipated. Um, and one of the things that we learn is that the federal government was actually monitoring the growth of this clavern, that they were watching what was happening in Pensacola, not to protect the African-Americans there, but to make sure that the Klan didn't get out of line too much. I mean, there was a, uh, a, a period where there were 30-some-odd documented cross-burnings in Escambia County in a six-month period. The FBI knew about this, but they did nothing to stop it. They were just monitoring it. So, again, with every story, including the Klan resurgence, including this, uh, this idea that the Klan was not a racist clan that it was, as they called it, I mean, in the newspapers, writing editorials about the quote-unquote space-age clan, right? That this is a new clan. They're not your daddy's racists. They're here to protect the besieged law enforcement community in Escambia County. They're here to protect the majority from attacks by the minority on symbols that they held dear. So again, it reeks of the white supremacist groups that still exist today. It is a story that is all too timely, all too relevant. Right. And and that's why, you know, when we look at, you know, you having to be that guy to withhold that phenomenal uh, uh, climactic story. Um, and so when I think about also this time frame and, you know, what's happening with the greater freedom struggle and how, um you know, Dr. King is someone who, um, though never goes to um, Pensacola himself, he was someone whose death did kind of change the movement, not kind of, it dramatically changed the movement. Um, hence why you have New York Times articles about that coming out today about it. But, um, but looking at particularly how the convergence of integration um in the 1970s also ca- kind of gave a last opportunity to the Southern Christian leadership, uh, a conference, uh, headed by, uh, Ralph Abernathy, Reverend uh, Ralph Abernathy to kind of try to stage a, a particular, uh, uh, resurgence of that particular group as well. Um, and so I think that part was also intriguing too, um, especially in light of the reason of him coming into that the particular space too. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Adam. And I think one of the themes uh, in my academic career, one of the things that I absolutely fell in love with when it came to uh, understanding, learning from the South's history is the C. Van Woodward School of the Irony of Southern history, right? That there's irony everywhere. And one of the ironies here is that uh, Dr. King realized that the movement was changing. I mean, in between 66 and 68, he is really at a crossroads. Where do we go from here? Chaos or community? And I use that book a lot to show that, you know, what's happening in Pensacola is a microcosm of the movement nationally. There is this uh, gut check almost of where do we go now? We have changed law. Now the hard work begins. Well, 
in Pensacola at the grassroots level, you see that. You see that, okay, we are integrated. The laws have changed. Now what? Now we have to do the hard work of confronting institutionalized racism. We have to look at police brutality and we have to look at Confederate imagery. Those are the the issues in Escambia County that meant a lot. They mean a lot now. Uh, There are other issues that mean a lot in different areas. But this whole idea of where do we go from here, chaos or community, was something that Pensacola confronted almost at the same time that Dr. King was confronting those same issues. Now, the irony here is that SELC came to Pensacola for the same reasons that the UKA did. The UKA wanted to have a national Klan resurgence using Pensacola as the springboard. Well, at the very same time, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference came to Escambia County for the exact same reason. They wanted to use what was happening in Pensacola to stage a national organizational resurgence, right? They both ended up leaving Pensacola frustrated, and they left local people uh, at odds over those conflicting goals. So, again, you wouldn't think that the SELC and the UKA had anything in common in the late 1970s, but they actually came to Pensacola for the for very similar reasons, very different outcomes, but very similar reasons. They looked at the racial tensions that existed in Pensacola that were civil rights related as a way to rejuvenate uh, what they saw as a floundering national struggle. Uh, They both ended up leaving disenchanted to a degree, but they were in Pensacola for the very same reasons. And uh, unfortunately, um, their activities heightened racial tensions. And when they left, they left local people to deal with the consequences of those tensions with each other. And they don't do a great job of dealing with those tensions. Right. And and it's that classic case of uh, like in um, Albany or or in Selma, when you have SNCC who's organizing on the ground and um, other uh, in other groups, and you know you see the tensions in um, in uh, Alva Duvernay's uh, Selma from a couple years ago, where um, you know John Lewis and uh, was it James Farmer are uh, are angry because it's like y'all just are just springing in here and trying to get all the glory. Meanwhile, you know we're doing the the hardcore organizing work. And so and, and on top of that, we're going to be here when it's all said and done and you're going to be gone, you know, doing your thing. And so it's that national versus uh, more regional look. And then you see what goes on with the NAACP, the local chapter there, too. And that was and that you chronicle uh, as causing particular tensions, too. Yeah, the the conflict and the rivalry between the SCLC and the NAACP continued. Uh, it continued into the 1970s, and the power dynamic that existed within the black community in Pensacola and, and um, the Florida NAACP, the national NAACP, and the Pensacola NAACP, uh, yeah, it plays out in almost tragic form because the goals of the national, state, and local branch are so incredibly different. So again, it, you know, for lack of a better term, it complexifies what we think we know about the post-1960s movement. And Pensacola then becomes a case study, not just for one community, but I think it becomes a microcosm of the struggle at the national level as well. There are so many national lessons, Adam, that we can learn from Pensacola. Uh, Pensacola continued into the 2000s to deal with issues that uh, that Confederate imagery brought. They continued to deal with issues of police brutality. And, um, you know, when those issues aren't confronted, they are just delayed for uh, the next generation to deal with. We're not doing the next generation any favors by continuing to deny that one side has a legitimate reason to feel like symbols matter and are used to make them feel as less than full citizens. Right. And so when I think about that, that is so true when we talk about um, symbols matter. And I, 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 I really challenge anyone uh, on, on the spot to really say that it's not because, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, they're all, they're, those, you know, they're, they don't matter, you know, they're, you know, they're just there, but it's like, no, like if the, the privilege is in 
not having to deal with being on the other side of that sim that symbolism, right? That when we look at um, you know iconography of um, you know it, it's the classic question like you have all of these Confederate War uh, memorials and 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 honoring of generals, but how many do you actually see of Ulysses S. Grant, right, General Grant? You see very few. Were the were the images of abolitionists not named Frederick Douglass? They're very few, right? And even of Douglass, there still aren't that many. Um, and so overall, if we talk about symbolism, it's like if it really didn't matter, then why are they up in the first place? And also, why is there such a hullabaloo when people try to take it down? It's because it's only when you're confronted with that particular history that the pressure is starting to build some diamonds, but those diamonds might not exactly be in your favor. That is exactly right, you know, and when people say that those monuments or those images represent the South, I kind of step back to say, who's South? Which South? Because it does not represent the entire South. You see that in Pensacola, right? You see the images being used for heritage, not hate. Well, it's one heritage. It's not all Southern heritage because the war resulted in almost 4 million freedmen, right? It didn't mean the same thing for all groups. And what African-Americans were saying in the mid-1970s that I think we would be wise to listen to today is that these symbols don't represent us. They don't represent to us what the people who are waving them in our faces say that they mean. It means that we're not welcome here. It means hurt. It means pain. A lot of white people might not understand that. Heck, Judge Arnow didn't understand that. He even said from the bench, I don't understand why these offend you as they do, but it's obvious that they do. You know, if I look back, Arnell said, if I look back in my lineage, I'll probably have ancestors who were slaves too. It doesn't matter to me, but it matters to you. That undermines a unitary school system. The presence of Confederate images reminds everyone who don't champion who do not champion those symbols that they are not seen as fully equal in a diverse democracy period what we see in escambia county is that we would be well served today by listening to voices and taking their word uh that those symbols mean something totally different to them than they may mean to the racial majority and you're right okay the the one thing about the pressure and the protest and there has to be conflict for there to be any type of compromise or resolution i had to step back because the reviewers of the manuscript made a really good point um at the at the end of the book i do a lot of demographic comparisons, and I do a lot of uh, number crunching, which historians typically hate, by the way, and which I found the least enjoyable part of the book to write. <laughs> but I thought it was necessary because the, you can't argue with the demographics. And the demographics demonstrate that the income maldistribution, that the economic indicators, that the educational indicators demonstrate that white and black are farther apart in the 1990s than they were in the 1960s. You can't argue the fact that that median household income, that the levels of college attendance are farther apart statistically for blacks and whites in Escambia County in 1990 than they were in 1960. Now, so, you know, that's one of the conclusions that I reached. But a reviewer had to say, you know, you need to step back and, and, and sort of represent the demonstrations because without student protest, those mascots are not removed from the school. And the reviewer was absolutely right. If there's not protest, if there's not activism from young people, by the way, from young people like we're seeing today, if you don't have young people saying, no, this means something totally different to me, those mascots and those symbols could very well still be in Escambia High School, but they're not. They're not. That would not have happened without the protest. It took a long time. It took four years. It took several different votes. It took it took four different mascots. There's a a graduating class at Escambia High that calls themselves the class of the rebels, Escambians, Raiders, and Gators, because those were the four mascots during their high school tenure. So it doesn't happen fast. It doesn't happen without conflict. 
but because of protest, because of what originated as peaceful nonviolent protest, the mascots were eventually removed. That would not have happened otherwise. The same thing continued into the 2000s, Adam. There was a debate about whether or not the Confederate flag should be removed from the quote-unquote City of Five Flags seal, the official city of Pensacola seal. Still had the rebel flag into the 2000s. And the one African-American who was on the county commission, uh, Lumen May, actually protested that. And during the debate to remove that symbol in the 2000s, he woke up with dead birds in his yard that had nooses tied around their necks. And his vehicle was draped with a Confederate flag. Now, that went in the book because that happened after the book went to press. So these things still matter and they still divide us and they still mean something that's very clear, both to people in the racial majority and people in the racial minority. And so, uh, Dr. Butler, if you don't mind in the last couple um, minutes that we have you, um, you know, looking at, you know, this particular story, I think it's, it's so important and it's why I'm glad uh, we're finally after uh much uh, difficulty um, to, to be able to get on today. Um, and, and so, so looking forward in, in what you have going on as far as projects, um, what are you um, involved in going forward If you that, that you can divulge? Um, because I know sometimes scholars get real, real uh, secretive about stuff because they want to make sure that no one else knows about it, right? Drop some bombs. <laughs> well, you know, I think as I've told you off, off air, uh, I'm full of half-baked ideas right now. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the next big project. I have uh, written a, an essay uh, on Isaac Hayes, Black Moses, and the post-1960s freedom struggle. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to presenting that at a couple of conferences coming up, and hopefully that'll be published uh, in a journal near you in the near future. Um, now, when it comes to big picture, I have a couple of ideas that are sort of circulating. Number one, uh, the racial tension between African-American and white troops in Vietnam during the war. Um, what I have read concerning that topic is that there is, of course, pressures between uh, troops on military bases stateside, but I have seen very little that documents th this tension that existed and was well documented uh, by the federal government in Vietnam during the war. That's one. Uh, another thing is I think that the topic of Florida civil rights is one that deserves its own monograph. I think that, you know, we can learn a lot about the nation's civil rights history by looking at Florida as that microcosm that I've mentioned several times. So if not a comprehensive history of the Florida civil rights movement, at least a narrative that pulls in a variety of different stories from Florida's civil rights past that places it in not just a statewide, but a national perspective with some of the lessons that we can learn moving forward as a nation uh, regarding what these issues of integration, desegregation, citizenship, and equality in a modern democracy mean. I, I think it's more timely now than it ever has been, Adam, unfortunately. Right. And, and there's definitely that unfortunate nature that, you know, when you talk about this particular project um, and, and the particular people that are involved in, it, I think one of the parts that's most profound is how you have continuities across centuries when it comes to, for African-Americans, what does citizenship mean? What does, you know, what does patriotism mean? What does, what do patriotic performances mean, right? So you have a story in there about uh, uh, African-Americans in the, um, in the, um, in the band who don't want to play Dixie and they have, um, you know, they, they, it's either you're going to fail your class or you're going to play Dixie. And so like putting, putting these children, putting, putting these students in these precarious positions where they have to, it's like fight or flight. Um, and as you mentioned before, especially in light of um, present events going down in um, Parkland, Florida, um, you know, and, and also uh, throughout the country, because also, you know, many African-American children um, and students have been engaged in anti-violence and anti 
a, a gun uh, work for for a long time. And the Parkland situation is a continuation of student activism. And so sometimes when you have uh, political pundits say to athletes, you know, just shut up and dribble. Uh, but it's like it's almost the same thing of telling anyone who's not presently involved as a as a political uh, 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 either appointee or as a government official who's elected. It's like we all occupy so many different uh, spaces in life that to put someone in a box to say that you can only do this, it's very limiting. But also history tells you a lot of times history comes at you from places that you don't expect it, like the black freedom struggle that you talk about in Beyond Integration in Pensacola, Florida. That's still, as you mentioned with your last story, is still touching people literally and figuratively in the present day. It sure is. And, you know, the power of symbols and the power of imagery, you know, for people to say, well, it's just a flag or it's just an icon. What does it mean? What do symbols mean? Um, well, I think in the light in light of the uh, the acclaim and financial success of a movie like Black Panther, we understand what icons and figures and popular culture can mean for an entire people and the nation as a whole, quite frankly. So, yeah, I, I do think that there are several themes in the book that, like I said, are both relevant and it complexifies what we think we know about the civil rights movement, its contemporary state and its long term legacy. Absolutely. And the, hopefully the legacy of this interview will be one that will be great as the sales of your book Beyond Integration. The Black Freedom Struggle in Escambia County, Florida, from 1960 to 1980, and as we just mentioned, and really and beyond, uh, published by uh, UNC Press in 2016. And uh, Dr. Butler, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, and uh, we definitely want to get you on the podcast again. Um, you know, when when um, you have your next uh, published work, because this conversation was uh, exceptional. Uh, along with the labor to make this uh, uh, podcast happen um, in, in getting us all uh, together, which we could uh, laugh at at the end of it. But it's definitely been a pleasure and an honor. And we definitely want to hear from you again in the near and dear future. Adam, it was, it was my pleasure. It was my honor. And you'll be the first to know when the next book is complete. So take care, my friend, and good luck in your studies and pursuits. Thank you so much. And once again, we have Dr. Butler from... Uh, Flagler College in St. Augustine, Florida. Thank you so much, New Books and African American Studies listeners. We'll chat with y'all later.